Hello, and welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here, of course, with Victor Davis Hanson, the Martin and Neely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, for the past week or so, the political press has once again been fixated on Donald Trump's immigration policy, although this time for a slightly different reason than what we've seen before which is the fact that we've got some signs that it may be changing. This sort of this started with some mixed signals coming from Trump himself and from members of his staff and then has run all the way through a trip that he just made to Mexico where he shared a stage with the president down there. Now, he's he still says he's going to build a wall. Mexico's going to pay for it. He's going to deport criminal aliens. It's not quite the sweeping all illegals are going home language that he's used before. Uh, why don't we start here? You wrote about this recently for National Review, and this is how you opened that piece, quoting you here. There was always only one sensible position on immigration. Victor, what is that position? Well, it's the whole controversy boils down to just one issue. What do you do with the several million people here illegally, the vast majority from Latin America and Mexico, who A, have been here for more than two or three years, B, have not committed a serious misdemeanor, and three, are not on public assistance. Now, those three categories, I think, would account for a couple of million. So you're still left with eight to nine million people who have been here, say, five years, they've had a work history, they're not on public assistance. And while we don't I think everybody agrees you don't give them citizenship as a reward, an amnesty. Most people would give them a pathway to legal residence. And then what they did after that's their business. But the key thing, the sticker is what do you do with them in that process? Do they have to go back to Mexico? Some people haven't been there for 20 years. And some people have children, they're U.S. citizens. So Trump, if you try to discern what he said, he, he still left that open, even in his tough Phoenix speech, he said, and that's a, that's a problem we're going to deal with later. He didn't say he was going. He didn't say we we're going to send everybody back, but that's the stickler because on all the other issues, he's got vast, overwhelming public support except that one issue. And the problem is in the in the primaries, he did say they had to go back, and so he's going to have to finesse that. And I think what he, he's the way he's doing it is he said, well, he's he's going to say. Well, I meant that all these other people had to go back that had come on this scent of amnesty or or not working or uh, had committed a crime. He has one thing going for him, and that is there is no antithetical policy articulated by Hillary yet. And from what we understand, it's sanctuary cities, open borders, no wall, no E-Verify, and no deportations at all, basically. And that's very unpopular. And then she's got to ask herself, what do you do with somebody who's got two DUIs or somebody who's cheating, got a false uh, Social Security number and broke a federal law? And she won't she won't address that. Trump softening on this has been sort of widely cited as an example of this pivot that everybody said has been coming. This is him moving to the center for the general election. Although you sort of wonder, Victor, if, if support or opposition for Trump tends to be so overdetermined that maybe this one thing is of marginal importance. Is, is this something that you foresee having a significant effect on the race one way or the other? No, because 
the the abyss between their positions is so wide anyway. He wants a wall, she doesn't. He wants to either tax remittances or use impounded cartel funds to pay for it. She thinks that's absurd. He wants to deport felons, those without work histories, those who are recently alive. She basically doesn't. He wants to verify she doesn't. She he He's going to end sanctuary cities. She won't. So there's enough differences that one particular point is not going to sink her sink his his uh his position on that i want to underscore one of the points that you just made there because you are one of the only high profile people on the right who makes this argument you do not regard trump's boast that he'll have mexico pay for the wall which he reasserted after meeting with the president down there even though the the president himself denied it you don't you don't regard that though as a crazy pledge explain that well i i live at ground zero of illegal immigration so what would you do if you see a federal dialysis clinic where people who inordinately suffer from diabetes go in and get free medical care and then walk walk over to the Western Union and send hundreds of dollars to Mexico every week? Or you go to Walmart and everybody's got an EBT uh, state card, and yet they're sending, I think the figure is $28 million to Mexico per se and another 25 to Latin America. So there's a lot of money there. And most of the people who are doing that, not all, but most are not here legally. So there has to be a mechanism where a person could say, we're going to have a surtax of 10% on all remittances sent to Mexico or Latin America by people, anybody who's not here legally. And I know that they could have third parties, but there's mechanisms to find a way to tax that. And that that per annum figure would be very close to the price of a wall. Let me see if I can sort of synthesize a couple of threads here that we've talked about on previous shows. When when we've talked about immigration in the past, you've mentioned that one of the dangers as you see it is that if if you get too many immigrants too quickly, and especially if there are sort of national or ethnic concentrations, it can weaken the capacity for assimilation because at that scale, you're essentially importing the, the culture and not just the individuals. Uh, you've also told us that diversity, sort of quad diversity is not – inherently valuable and that what you need regardless of the race or religion or whatever else the people coming in is some binding factor, some some force for unity. Now, the real immigration pessimists will say that the demographic changes happen so quickly and, and so sharply that the culture is already fractured in a way that can't be repaired. The damage is already done. But it is your position that if you secure the border, if you get more of a handle on immigration, we still have the capacity to slow things down enough that we can get back to something closer to a melting pot model. I see it. I see it every day. I see it. I see second generation kids from Mexico whose parents were here illegally that don't know English. I don't know Spanish. I see it. And they uh, I just went to Best Buy for a computer problem and somebody was there who was from Mexico and was legal, and uh, he sounded like a valley girl the way he talked. So I can see, I, I can see the I can see I have about five friends and even people in my family who were married from to people from Mexico. So it happens, but it doesn't happen when you let in a, essentially a million people illegally without education, legality, or um, English language facility. So. And it's not diverse. I think it's about 75% of the immigrants are coming from Latin America. So if we were to be 
left wing and progressive, we would say we believe in diversity. We believed in ethnically blind merit. We believed in the triumph of the law. So we're going to have a system that lets in 100,000 a year. You have to have a BA. You have to have some capital. You have to have skills. And you have to be from all over the world, Nigeria, Korea, all over. And that's something the left just doesn't want because it does not – that type of legal immigrant does not square its circle. It doesn't, it doesn't allow for a permanent underclass that will vote democratic. Can the left – I should qualify this, the political figures on the left. Can a Hillary Clinton be candid about what her position no. on immigration actually is, or does she kind of have to weasel word the whole thing? No, she can't because it's basically an ethnocentric, racist, La Raza position, and it's basically we're going to allow one area of the world to send its immigrants here illegally into the United States, and we're going to not ask anything of them. And we're going to say to them that assimilation, integration, intermarriage is bad and La Raza chauvinism is good. And in exchange for that, we're going to expect them to vote uh, in the American Southwest in a way that turns Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico blue the way it has turned uh, a formerly red California blue. That's all it's about. You've been... Uh, critical of Donald Trump a number of times on this show, but you've not been as dismissive of him as many of your colleagues on the right. And I don't think I'm putting words in your mouth to say that you sort of regard him as the better of two suboptimal choices. Yeah. One of the central criticisms that comes from your, your friends in the Never Trump camp, Victor, is that the man is capricious and that that's reflective of a deeper truth, which is that he really has no sort of guiding principles when it comes to yeah. policy. And, and a lot of them are saying that this shift on immigration and what was in many respects sort of the central idea of his campaign is is further proof of that and further proof that he's not to be trusted w with the presidency. How do you respond to that line of criticism? Well, I, I, I read his I read his uh, website and I looked at I listened to his speech and it's still much, much more conservative than Hillary's, and it's probably more conservative than all the other Republican candidates. Not all of them were for e-verify deportation of people who uh, were not didn't have a work history. And he, I mean, he didn't say that illegal immigration is an act of love, like Jeb Bush. So the other issue about his character and temperament, it's I'm a practical person. I, I grew up on a farm. I still live there, and and for me, 51% always beats 49%. And, and that's just a fact. And, and I would ask the never Trump to take a piece of paper and say taxes, foreign policy, immigration, Obamacare, uh, abortion, and then put a, a line down the middle and tell me what Hillary's latest incarnation is versus Trump's latest incarnation and try to tell me that Trump is not more conservative. I just don't believe that's possible. So I would try to do like William F. Buckley, vote for the most conservative candidate that can win. And I think this time it's it's Trump. I'm not saying that what he says and how he says it are not disturbing, but we that horse left the barn a long time ago. We, we have a president, remember, who has told supporters, get in their face, take a gun to a knife fight, typical white person intervened in criminal cases and said that the defendant looked like the son he never had. We've had Joe Biden and Harry Reid talk about clean blacks and bl blacks that don't have a Negro accent. 
We've had Obama tell La Raza people to um, punish their enemies at the polls. We've had, I mean, this is not Alice, Alice in Wonderland. This is not Wizard of Oz stuff. And the, the idea that these never Trump people say, not in my name would I ever condone what Trump has said or, or, or implied, but I mean, compared to what is routine on the left, and, and the left doesn't do that. There's not going to be 50... Uh, Democrats that say, oh, my gosh, I cannot vote. Not in my name can I vote for somebody who's selling diplomatic passports or having her top aide work for a foundation and the State Department or lied about never sending classified material or endangered the security of the United States. Just I just can't do that. I haven't seen anybody say that. Victor, I want you to take us out today with a, a history lesson. You've been writing a lot recently about the examples that history gives us of what happens when societies become centrifugal rather than centripetal. That is to say when they become, to, to use the modern term, multicultural instead of organizing around what they have in common. What, what does the historical record look like there? Well, we, we have Rome that was able for three centuries to take the Italian paradigm and impose it on the Mediterranean world where people spoke Latin and they agreed with habeas corpus and they built aqueducts. And then sometime around the fourth century, the sheer number of people who were within that system uh, were not in, assimilated. And so people were speaking Greek, they were speaking Numidian, and it, it took just about a century to blow apart. And empires that are multiracial, multiethnic, the Ottoman Empire, the Austria-Hungarian -Hung Empire that superseded the Austrian Empire on the same premises, they, they just don't have a good record. And nations today that that have multiracial populations, whether it's Iraq or Rwanda or the former Yugoslavia, they don't do well. And notice that nobody says in those, those problematic countries, I believe in diversity. They have enough diversity coming out of their ears. So we're the only, con we're the only country that can do it. And yet, why would we take something that works like the melting pot and deprecate it and then champion something that from history and the contemporary world we know doesn't work, the salad bowl diversity separatism. And the only answer I can come up with is it furthers the careers of an elite that's heavily invested in uh, sowing discord for political purposes. All right. That's all the time that we have for today's episode. Join us next week for the next installment of the Classicist Podcast. And in the meantime, you can stop by hoover.org to read all of Professor Hansen's commentary. We'll see you back here soon. For Victor Davis Hansen and the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.